O Lord, you've taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That is the collect appointed for today, the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany, February the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. Um, been kind of a, a slow week, I guess, maybe one way to say it. Uh, we haven't done much this week. <laughs> it's been kind of nice, you know, we had Valentine's, all that kind of stuff going on. And uh, so it was a good week. Um, I think we... We, we navigated it pretty well, mo- most of the week at least. We didn't, haven't done too much, but ready to start ready to get back out. The weather is warming up, and so ready to get back out and start hiking more. Suzanne's back's better, so that, that's helpful um, because she can go with me then. Anyway, just been that kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a nothing kind of a week, but not a bad week. All my friends who had been in the hospital with COVID and stuff are all doing much better, and... Um, so I'm excited to see changes in people's lives. Everybody is is getting better and doing well. So everything is is kind of on an even keel at the moment, which is always a helpful thing. I don't know if you saw it this week, but there was a story. There's a guy in California who had um, he he he's a surfer, uh, but does all kinds of stuff on the water. He'll he'll go surfing or surfing, but he also does urchin diving. I wasn't aware there was such a thing as an urchin diver, but this guy's and he he did that well. So one day uh, he went out and decided to spend the night on his boat, and he called his wife and said, "Is that all right with you? You know, here's what I'm going to do." She said, "Fine, you do whatever you need to do." So he decided to spend the night on the boat. Well, something happened, and he fell off the boat, <clears throat> and and it was nighttime, and there was no moon as it happened that night. So he the he had left the boat in gear, so the boat started going away and he tried to swim after and he couldn't catch up with it um so he he realized he was going to have to come up with an alternative plan fortunately there were some oil platforms out there but but there was a long distance to get to the oil platforms and he began to swim and and he was sort of losing hope because he was getting in his head and that was the main thing was is it's not that he didn't have the ability or the physical strength to do it but but he, he got into his head and he started thinking, you know, I, I just I don't think I'm going to make it. And who's going to raise my children and blah, 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 blah. So he goes through this whole thing. And then suddenly a big splash occurs and it scares him to death. And he I won't say what he said, but he thought it was a shark. <clears throat> and then he looked around and it was a seal. Well, as it happened, that seal accompanied him <laughs> as he swam. And it encouraged him to have company, something with him on the way. And so he said the seal seemed to be pushing him to, to keep going, to keep going and keep going. And he was he became his companion. He said he began to sing him Grateful Dead songs and talk to the seal and all that kind of stuff. And so he wasn't alone in his mind. But but it was more than that. He, he didn't just say, oh, great, that's a seal. What a great thing Mother Nature has done. No, along the way, he began to believe. He said he had, he had never been a religious person. In fact, he had, he had hated organized religion. And, and, but as he went along here, he, he began to pray. Now, was his prayer what I would want it to be? No, absolutely not. Um, what he was pleading for was is that God would save him because he deserved it, because he wasn't that bad a guy. So 
um, he gets finally, the, the story continues for a while, and then he ends up being able to get onto one of the oil platforms and is saved. He, he was clearly hypothermic um, and had, you know, some injuries from the swim and it had inhaled a lot of seawater along the way, salt water. So he, he was very nauseous and all this. But anyway, he gets he got saved um, from death. But here's what he has to say at the end of his journey. This is, this is his own words. He wrote a blog post about it. He said, I'll tell you what, I'm a believer that there's a higher power now. I don't know what it is, but there's a power greater than me. That was shown to me, and I will never doubt that for the rest of my life. After my big swim, a light just went off in my head. I realized that it's time to start living and tie up all the loose ends in my life. I'm kind of a computer game nerd at heart, and I guess I got the high score, an extra life, and made it to the bonus round. Grace was my great-grandmother's name. It's my daughter's name and my boat's name. I guess I named it that for a reason. So what happens along the way is a companion comes along, somebody to come next to him as he's swimming along, and, and it ends up being his salvation, this companion along the way. It's a wonderful story, and, and I wonder what it might have to say for us about how we might best reach our own, Un, uh, or non-Christian friends, even unchristian friends, to be honest with you, um, what we could do maybe is offer to come alongside and and be that friend, that person who is there. Just a thought. It kind of has something to do, however, with the lessons today as well. Um, it, Jesus tells us how we might do that how we might become that person. And we see it first in the Old Testament lesson, which is Genesis 45, verses 3 to 11, and then verse 15. It's a, uh, the story is about um, Joseph and his brothers have come because there's a famine in the land, and so they have come down to Egypt to get food in order they might take it back to, their, to the families who were um, outside the, the land of Egypt. And so Joseph, remember, has been uh, sold into slavery and has ended up in Egypt. But along the way, he has, through God's intervention in giving him wisdom that far exceeded all that of the Egyptian uh, wise men, let's say, um, he becomes an important part of Pharaoh's household. He, He interprets a dream that explains that they're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so he becomes um, quartermaster for the whole nation. Uh, he, he becomes the guy who, who is in charge of scarce supplies so that they can be distributed in such a way that, that there's the least amount of suffering during the years of famine. So the brothers have come down. Joseph sees them, and then here he has revealed himself to them. There's, there's a lot more to that story, <laughs> that, but, but I don't have time to tell it all. So anyway, he, he, he has revealed himself to the brothers, and they were dismayed by that because they felt certain that he would hold against them what they had done in selling him into slavery. So he says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? They were so shocked and dismayed that they couldn't answer him because they assumed the very worst about what would happen here. And so you can see these guys standing there looking at him like, oh, my gosh, 
the day of reckoning has come. God has found out our sins, and this is not good. But Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. They're, they're obeying this Egyptian official who is also their brother. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So I'm not just saying I'm Joseph. No, 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 no. I know what you did. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. All that he has gone through, he spent some time in prison because of a false accusation. He spent longer than he should have in prison because he had um, interpreted a dream for someone and they were supposed to remember him to the king and they didn't when they had the opportunity to do so. And so he had suffered greatly, but then God had raised him up at the end of that suffering. It's partly because Joseph actually needed to be humbled. (laughs) He was a proud and arrogant young man. And so in the same way that you see God sending um, Moses into exile after he initially thought that he would take on himself the role of redeemer for God's people, his people, You see the same thing with Joseph, who had a vision that he would be exalted above his brothers and decided to share that with everybody, including his father, and he was going to be exalted above his father as well. Should have just kept that, did what Mary did, pondered it in his heart, but no, he shared it with his brothers, and and so they were not fans of Joseph, let's say. And so when they come here, now they see this young man, indeed, in exactly the position that he had seen in his dream. And so after his term of exile, he's now prepared as a man to handle the situation with love. He's not seeking revenge against his brothers for having him sold into slavery. No, he's telling them, God sent me here to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvest. And then here's the really important thing. He says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So he has absolved his brothers and said, look, I don't blame you for this. I don't blame you for any of this stuff. Actually, I see that God had a plan and God's sovereign and all of the things that happened are working together for good. And that God, God did this. I see it. You know, before he could have been proud of being an Egyptian official and being in charge of all of Pharaoh's household, and then over the economic um, life of the nation, the greatest nation on earth at the time, he could have been very proud of that. But instead, he he saw in it a role and a responsibility to the people of Egypt, and so he he worked to handle. and manage scarce resources in order that the least suffering possible could happen. And now, when his brothers come to him and he finds out that his father's still alive, he sees the whole thing in a completely different light. He sees it in the light of uh, the, the preservation of his family and the preservation of the covenant community with God. And, and he, it's personal. And so now it's even more important. And he sees this role as preserving life. It's a powerful uh, way to think about it, that, that, that your job is preserving life. But he, he moves from that to preserving you as a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it's a, 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 a great recognition on his part 
of the role that he has and has been given, and it's to preserve his family. And so he, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So once he proved themselves, himself to them, they see that he's genuine in his affection for them, and he's genuine in his forgiveness for them. I don't know that you could have done—I mean, they could have killed him initially, and, and that was the thought. <laughs> that they initially had, and then cooler heads prevailed, and they decided to sell him into slavery. So it's um, an amazing reversal of fortune here, and and these guys initially, I don't blame them for being afraid that, that Joseph might be seeking vengeance, that it might not be in their benefit that Joseph is there. But the other side of it is now they have to go back to their father, and they have to explain something, and and that is... Um, you know, before we kind of told you that Joseph had died and we found his cloak and you identified his cloak. And, and so you've thought all this time Joseph was dead. Well, actually, he's in Egypt and the story's not quite what we told you before. <laughs> so there's a dilemma that they have to deal with. And that dilemma is how are we going to explain this to dad? But with the knowledge that he's going to be so happy to hear that Joseph's still alive that maybe he'll overlook what we did. So it's an interesting kind of a dilemma that they have. But at the same time, Joseph is a guy who has been gravely sinned against by his brothers. And yet in spite of that, he has, he, he has come to a, a very mature, and I would say Christian, conclusion. And that is, is that, that God had a plan so for all the bad things that happened in his life. And so the, the more we can live with the idea of the sovereignty of God, the more we can live as Christians are intended to live. It's when we lose sight of the fact that God's sovereign over all things that we lose our equanimity and we lose our ability to see things correctly in the world. You know, one of the things that I've mentioned several times is this struggle that I had in ministry that when somebody came against me, it's not that I was always initially, you know, wildly defensive about it, but, but when people were wrong and they were, they were trying to harm me in some way, um, I reacted to them as human beings and as individuals and not in the way Paul would have us deal with it, the way that he speaks of it in Ephesians, when he says that, that your struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and rulers in the high, heavenly places. No, that's the battle we need to fight, and that's exactly what this gospel is telling us today. Remember that, that this chapter in Luke 6 is essentially, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's Luke's retelling of what we get in Matthew 5 to 7. Now here we get it in Luke, and so he's gone up the mountain by himself, and then he's got his disciples, and they've gone up, and then they've come back down, and he's taught the people, and he's what he's done so far is the Beatitudes. And now here we are a little later in that same thing, and he's going to teach. And again, all this stuff is in Matthew 5, but this this seems to be an expanded version 
of some of the teachings that Matthew consolidates for us. So he says here, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And then he gives a series of exactly how to do that. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. So we get the golden rule at the end of that. So there's a there's a sort of a, a offensive and defensive way of looking at what Jesus has just said. And the only offensive thing that he says is, is as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. You're to be the example for this, no matter what the situation. And and it's a, a powerful corrective. And, and when he talks about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, if you strikes on the cheek, offer the other. If somebody takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. All those things are defensive, right? It's how to act when somebody mistreats you. When somebody is mistreating you in any way, Jesus says, go along, just go right along with it. And Paul says the same thing in Romans, because he says you'll be heaping coals on their head, but it's because it didn't work. When I was in college, um, pledged to fraternity my freshman year, and so one of the things that we had to do was we would go into uh, the dining hall and when we got into the dining hall, you get your tray, you get your food, you go back and you sit down, and, and the fraternities tended to just all sit together. And if you were a pledge, you had to. So because if anybody needed anything, you were the person who was going to go get it. Uh, so you'd be in the middle of your meal. Somebody would say, you know, pledge green, go get this for me. And Okay, so you get that. Well, I started out in that whole thing with kind of a crummy attitude about it. It was, it was you know, an inconvenience and all that. Because sometimes people would come in and say, I didn't feel like standing in line. You go stand in line for me and get my meal, And in spite of the fact that I was eating. And so I, I had a crummy attitude about it for a while. And then I decided, no, let's just turn this on its head and, and be proactive about it and say, how may I serve you? And it changed the way that I felt about everything. And, and it's important that we take that attitude. And, and it was a, it, for me, it was just a submission to, a, to an authority and a process. And that process was designed to make me a certain kind of a person. It felt abusive at the moment. And then what I began to realize is that I became a different person. I became somebody who, who just automatically would say, does anybody need anything? And it, so it molded and shaped me in a, in a unique way, but I resented it for a season of time. And, and so, as you do, <laughs> so Jesus, when he says, love your enemies, what he's actually saying more or less is don't have any enemies. No matter whether somebody considers you their enemy or not, don't, don't go there. Love your enemies. So l- love the people who, who are, who consider you their enemies and bless them if they curse you and pray for them those who abuse you. And what it doesn't say is, is don't pray this way. Don't pray, Lord, just, just slaughter them. Do something awful to them in, in retribution. No, what he's, what he's doing is what he's, what he's saying is what he's going to do. We see that throughout his whole life, that, that the only people that he responds to uh, sort of passionately are the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the ones that are called hypocrites. And it's because they're shepherds of the people and they don't care about the people. So he's not even taking it personally at that level, and it's, it's exactly what Moses is told not to do, because it would have been easy in Moses' uh, position along the way when the people grumbled against him and everything else to, to kind of get his back up against them. And God said, no, 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 don't take this personally. 
it's coming against me, pray for them. And so Moses prayed for the people when, when they came against him. He would go to God, and that's the important thing to do. Um, what we could do in, in our own minds is recognize these people are operating under a delusion. It's a delusion from Satan. That it, it doesn't mean that we're always in the right. We need to be people who are quick to ask for forgiveness, to accept our own responsibility, and, and to um, acknowledge our own sin. It's, it's important that we do that. But And then Jesus goes on to say why to do these things. And and quickly, I'll tell you that, that one of the things I know that separates Christianity and Judaism is indeed Jesus laying down his life and allowing it to be taken. And, and that as an example to us, that we should be willing to do the same. Um, it, it's, it's this self-defense thing is what I'm getting at. I mean, it's, I believe <laughs> that if you were only coming against me to attack me, I could I could allow that. If you come against somebody I love or care for or, or any other human being, to be honest with you, but probably more with people that I really care about, then I can't let that happen. I can't let somebody harm another person. But I, but I can choose whether or not to defend myself, depending on the situation. That in Judaism, that you have to. Life is that sacred. It's that important. Your life is that important that you should fight for it if somebody wants to take it from you. And so there, there are principles that regard self-defense, and, and the principles regarding self-defense basically come down to use exactly the amount of force and no more than is necessary to stop the intention of harm against you. So if somebody starts shoving you and kind of picking on you, it's not okay to pick up a shovel and hit that person over the head. No, you, you just use enough force to stop this. And they also draw a distinction between two types of uh, burglaries, actually, and how you react in those two situations. And it's interesting because until the 70s, at least, in British law, criminal law, the, it treated a break-in during the day as different than a break-in during the night. There's a malevolence in breaking in during the night that's not there during the day. And that's actually in Jewish law. It's in the Talmud. Uh, about how to deal with that, and, and the way that you deal with it is, is that at night, it's okay to kill somebody if they come in and break into your home. It, it, during the day, it's not okay. But at night, there's a presumption that the person knows you're at home, knows that you're asleep and therefore vulnerable, and, and, and intends evil against you. So that's the principle involved there. And during the day, the person's breaking in out of, out of desperation, at some level. And so that unless they present an extraordinary danger to you, then it's not okay to respond with overwhelming force. And so Jesus is saying here, that's not even right. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And in that story that I told you about the guy who ends up at sea for five hours with the seal, he recognized that God, whatever entity that might be, was kind, was merciful and gracious to him. He recognized that he didn't do that on his own, that God sent a seal alongside him 
You know, God's using nature to accomplish his work because he's out in the middle of the ocean. So where else is he going to get help and support? But, but he sees that kindness. And then what he said is, is that as a result, what he wants to do is tie up the loose ends of his life and, and begin to change and be a better person. And then he goes into the idea of naming his boat and his daughter Grace. He recognized the importance of grace, and because he saw the grace that was given to him, his intention, whether we follow, we follow through with it or not, who knows, but, but his intention is to be a gracious person. He's received grace, and now he's going to be a dispenser of grace. And I, I think that, that that's all Jesus is really saying to us. And Paul is going to say things like, you, you were once enemies of the cross of Christ. And if anybody knew that, it would be Paul, because he was an enemy of the cross of Christ. So, but, but God loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of his, while we consider ourselves enemies of God's, he didn't consider himself to be our enemy. He loved the world that would reject him, that hated him, enough to send his son to die for the life of the world. In the, in the, with the intention that we would understand that not only have we received grace, we are to be like him in giving grace, in loving our enemies. Jesus is not just going to tell us to do something he's not going to do or not willing to do. Even at the cross, remember, his prayer is, while they're taunting him and saying things like, you saved others, now save yourself. If you really want us to believe in who you are, come down from that cross. And, and they're taunting and mocking him after they've beaten him nearly to death. From the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we know it's not just Jesus who can do that, because it's exactly what Stephen does as they stone him. We're intended to love our enemies, because that's exactly what God has done for us. He changed us from enemies into brothers, into children, by his love, by not returning tit for tat by not treating us as enemies, but rather treating us beloved children, even though we were so rebellious that we had rejected him, as, as he talks about in the parable of the prodigal son. And when he talks about loving your enemies, what he's saying is just love everybody. And that's the reason when, when he's asked, who is my neighbor? And the, the reason you ask that question is because you've got to love your neighbor. And so you want to know, who do I have to love? And the implication is, who can I exclude from that? Because they knew that loving meant an extension of the self. It's not just some fond feeling and emotion, that it was an extension of the self. And Jesus proves that in the telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan by, by saying how this guy extended himself financially and personally on behalf of this man who we know nothing about. We don't know if he's a Jew. We don't know if he's a Gentile. We have no idea who he is. All we know is, is the identity of the person who cared for him and who loved him. And it's important that we not make those distinctions, that we not choose to love just those people who love us and who are lovable themselves. No, he tells us to love those people who are not lovable and who are doing unloving things to us. But we're not to return that. We're to actually act towards those people in love. And, and that, Paul will say later, is like heaping coals on their head because it changes them as well, because it, it shows them there's an alternative way to live. And it doesn't mean you're a doormat. No, it means I'm making a choice to do this. 
I'm going to go out of my way to do this. It's, it's my character now. And that's exactly what Jesus intended it to be. It, he gives the Holy Spirit with the intention of shaping our character in addition to confirming us in faith. It's intended that we live by the Spirit in order that our character would be shaped into his character. He goes on to say, judge not and you won't be judged. Condemn not and you won't be condemned. Forgive and it'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. One of the things that Paul will say and one of the things that Jesus will encourage us to do is if you want to judge somebody, just judge yourself. It's the most important thing, Paul says, you can do before you come to communion, actually, is to judge yourself. You're to, you're to judge yourself in such a way that the Holy Spirit is able to convict you of sin, and you're quick to recognize that, to confess that, and repent of that. So if we, if we spend our time judging ourselves, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, <clears throat> then, then we are the ones that will be transformed. I can't transform another person. I can say things to them and help try and help them. But I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit in, in convicting them of that and seeing that this is what I really ought to be doing and who I really ought to be. I can't do that for you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I can say things, but I can say it without judgment as well. And, and the way the Holy Spirit convicts us is in such a way that we see clearly and rightly and through God's eyes what needs to change. It doesn't mean that we don't get affirmation also from the Holy Spirit, but, but we need to be sensitive to that. The first thing in those situations that needs to be judged is, is the criticism coming at me legitimate at any level? And if not, then, then I can begin to, to respond in a different way and, 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 and understand the motive. I mean, too often we don't know enough to judge what somebody else's motive is because we don't know what they're going through. And so it, the more we, we know and the more that we react with kindness and love towards other people, then, then the more things actually can change. And, and I know that because it's what God did with us. And he, he's making us into different people through his grace and his mercy and his love. And that's the point of the, the conviction of sin is God's grace and mercy is to say, here's something you need to deal with. You know, do you, if you don't, then later it's going to be painful to deal with it because I'm trying to get your attention now and get you to turn from this and repent and see it the right way. If you don't <laughs> and you refuse to respond to God's gracious uh, prompting, then, then later that it's, it's going to have to be dealt with in a more painful way. And so we, we need to be quick to accept this and, and to say, Lord, you're in charge of all things. I believe that all things are working together for good, even though they don't look like it today. I don't know what the resolution of this situation will be. I'm just going to persevere in being the person I know you call me to be. And I'm not going to blame other people. I'm not going to be angry with other people for all these things. I'm going to trust and believe that you have a plan, and this is part of it, because I know you to be sovereign. Paul kind of wraps all this up in the end for us by, by talking about resurrection and the resurrection body. There's obviously there's questions everybody wants to know. What is that going to look like? And Paul's going to give us sort of an answer to that. And what he's trying to get at is, is, is to say this life is a process of getting to be the kind of person you will be 
<laughs> in the next life. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that's to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other kind of grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And he's speaking there about agrarian uh, things, but also mixing it with a, with a metaphor of, I mean, hey, the body that you have is the body that you have but it will be renewed in in a different way. And Jesus uses that same metaphor that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, then it won't become what it's intended to be. And so that he's saying, you know, that I've got to, to give up my life and be that seed that falls into the ground and dies in order to produce a harvest for you. So I'm going to die that you might be something different and that you might have eternal life. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What's sown is perishable, it dies. What is raised is imperishable, it never dies. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. So it's sown in sin, because this is my sinful body. But ultimately, Paul says, God's going to glorify that body. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Weakness would, would imply multiple things. It would imply things like you know, being weak in, in temptation, but it would also mean weak as in feeble and falling apart, because we are, <laughs> you know, ultimately we die, and so uh, somewhere along the way, I don't know where that point is, we begin declining, and it's up to us to, to manage that decline by taking care of our bodies, but at the same time, we recognize that that ultimately this body, the, the, its powers are waning, and, and Paul says it, that this body will be raised in power, and it's a power that's not going to decline in that same way. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. In other words, there's some analog between this body and the next body, but but not really. He said, if there's a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. He's speaking logically here. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being because God breathed into it and gave it his spirit for life. Then says the the opposite of that is the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So it's the other way around. God gave life to the first Adam. The last Adam gives life. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual, and that's the reason Jesus says you must be born again. So you have a spiritual, you have a, a natural body and a natural life. But if you're born again from the Spirit, then you have a more spiritual body because you have God's Holy Spirit, not just the Spirit for living, but the Spirit for eternal life and the Spirit for living a God-centered life. <clears throat> he said the first man was born from the earth, a man from dust; the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. One is perishable, the other is imperishable. One is is, is bounded by life, and the other is well, bounded by eternity. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And that's the goal of giving us the Holy Spirit, that we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We'll never get there fully in this life, but it's the intention. And it should be a settled intention for Christians to become more like Jesus. And where we see attitudes and behaviors that are not in keeping with that, then we should be quick to say, I need to amend that. I need to change these things. But Jesus tells us what the contours of that life are like and what the contours of love are when he tells us to love our enemies. He says, love everybody. 
God so loved the world. And, and when he, he didn't come in order that the entire world might be saved, only the elect, only those the Father gave him, only those the Father is continuing to give him. But he loved the world nonetheless. It, it's not a rejection of the world by its creator, as, as like you would see in the, in the story of Frankenstein which is exactly that story. It's the, it's the story of someone who creates something and, it, and finds it utterly abhorrent. And then the rest of the story is, is him fleeing from his own creation and his own creation's attempt to, to be loved by his creator. That's the story of Frankenstein. It's probably not the story you remember from the movies, but it's the story of the book. And, and what we have in, in Christ is God's proof of his love for his creation, no matter how disobedient, no matter how far afield, no matter how much it rejects him, he continues and perseveres in loving his creation, and we need to be like that. That's the attitude we need to take. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's what Jesus says, you must be born again, born from above, of water in the Spirit. It, in, in the proof of that is how well we, we are able to follow the commandments that Jesus makes, which is love your enemies. That is one of the chief things where we need to see Christians step up and become more like Christ. We need to be those who, who are quick to forgive and who understand always that God loves the world.